your happiest moment is never the day that they turn up because you understand the circumstances that they're coming from. My life's biggest privilege, but biggest tragedy is that I've loved children, not from my body. You know, that bittersweet feeling. I love all of them and I hurt for all of them. I hurt for the hurt that they suffered and any future hurt that any other kids may suffer. But my hurt is a small price to pay to stop some of their hurt. To show them that they that they can be loved. Welcome to the RMA podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Nicole Bunyan founder of Running Mums Australia. Each episode, I will be speaking to everyday women who have an inspiring story to tell. We will cover the highs and lows of their own journey, the impact motherhood has had on their life, and how running has inspired them to live wilder, dream bigger, and change the world around them. Thank you for joining us on this new adventure that will hopefully leave an imprint for you to live out your own life inspired to conquer goals you never thought possible. Hello RMA, welcome back to another episode of the RMA podcast. I hope you loved our last episode where we talked with running mum, Olympian, an all-round amazing woman, Eloise Wellings, and her work with the Love Mercy Foundation. This week on the podcast, we talk about something a little bit different. In RMA, there is so many amazing women with so many different stories. And it isn't just about the running that we want to know about here on the RMA podcast. It's about these women and their stories and how a lot of these women have impacted their world. Sometimes they use running as a vehicle to help them impact the world, and sometimes running helps them to be a better version of themselves. Today, we talk to an amazing woman, Sandra Ellers, about her story being a foster carer. Sandra, over a long time, has been a foster carer and has had 31 children so far in her care. She has made a huge impact in foster care in Queensland, and she's made a difference in the lives of so many children. We wanted to bring light to foster caring because some people in Running Mums Australia might be interested in knowing more about foster care or how they can become involved. So we thought we would share Sandra's story, how she got into foster caring, the highs and lows of the journey, the ins and outs of how foster care works and how you might be able to help out. Sandra is a very vibracious woman. She's got an amazing story about how she came to foster care. And in this episode, you'll hear that we don't discuss who exactly is in Sandra's care right now, um, because this is protecting the privacy of the children in her care. But she's an amazing mom and she's an amazing foster carer to these beautiful children. So let me introduce you to Sandra Ellers. Before we begin, a message from this week's sponsor, Physiocram Massage Gel. Physiocram has been helping Running Mums Australia to achieve their running goals for years now and ease those post-training muscular aches and pains. Hurting sucks and Physiocram has our back. 
To get your own Physiocram, head to www.physiocram.com.au. Don't forget, if you're a member of the member program, you can get 20% off with your member code. You can also find Physiocram at your local pharmacy. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for coming on today to talk about your family. Um, Before we begin on the journey, like today we're talking about foster caring and how that has played a big role in your life. Um, But before we start there, do you want to just introduce yourself to the listeners, um, you know, who you are and because this is a running podcast too, maybe just tell the listeners how running entered your world. My name's Sandra. I'm 46 years old. And that's a national secret. So, uh, oh, <laughs> um, I've, I've been running since 2017. Prior to that, I would post every meme you've ever seen about, you know, I can't run because I'd get black eyes. My knee, my knees would be bruised. You know, running was not for me. I would never, ever, ever be a runner. But my best friend in the whole world is a type one diabetic, and she was trying to you know, get fit, lose a bit of weight. And I thought I'll support her. So I went along to park run with her and I was like, oh my gosh, this is for me. You know, the support, the amount of people that would, you know, complete strangers that would cheer you on and, and, you know, cheer you up and keep you going. It's addictive. And then the adrenaline rush. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started losing weight and I was like, oh my gosh, this is for me. Then, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I can't tell you how many half marathons, two full marathons and an ultra later. Wow, <laughs> I see? might be a little bit addicted. So your yeah. friend, who's the enabler here, and yep. all the parkrun people as well, let's just throw that in. Yeah. And I just did a podcast interview with Tim from Parkrun and uh-huh. um, and we're talking about that. Like what is it about Parkrun that just seems to get people in? And I guess for you, like, you know, you said yourself that you were never going to be a runner. Like this was just not for you, but you went along to an environment, parkrun, that allowed you to think differently. What was it about parkrun that made you think, hang on a minute, maybe I actually could be a runner? It felt achievable. Hmm. 5K sounds like so much, but when you're in the company of friends, yeah, you know, it, it went by so quickly. And then when I saw the time, I really thought I'd be like an hour and a half, yeah. you know, because I was morbidly obese. I really thought that it would be terrible and I was just under the hour and I was yeah. pretty proud, you know, to be under the hour. It was amazing, honestly. I couldn't, and then the next week I went back and I knocked seven minutes off and you <laughs> couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't walk into a room, you know, my head was so swollen because I yeah. knocked all this time off my time, Yeah, you know, but it's achievable. The first time I went, because I wasn't going to be a runner, I wore denim shorts. I wore a cheesecloth <laughs> shirt. I wore a great big wide brim straw hat, you know, like yeah. not running gear at all. And then the second week I turned up in, you know, running running tights in it and a great big sloppy T-shirt. I had a visor, not an <laughs> RMA one yet. I didn't know about RMA yet. Yeah. But, we'll you know, that. total different mindset, yeah. different goal. Mm. It, yeah, it's, it's all Paula's fault. It's all her fault. It's all her fault. And I mean, that's the thing, like with parkrun too, is that like, well, you could turn up in that and that's perfectly fine too. Like, you know, because not everybody has to run at parkrun either. You know, you can just go to walk, you can go to volunteer even um, just to be connected to a community of like-minded people who want to be active or just, just connect even. It doesn't even, you don't even have to run at parkrun to be connecting in your community. 
That's really cool. Like I like when people say parkrun because I just love parkrun and I love what it does. And I guess my next question for you is how did you come across RMA? The ED at the parkrun I was going to is nearly an hour from my home. Um, my girlfriend that I went to support lives in the suburb that I grew up in yeah. and that's the park run she went to. So I was getting up at like five or well, 4.30 in the morning to leave by five to get there by 20 past six to get a park yeah. and the ED there was in RMA and I heard some of the girls talking about this RMA. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I joined. It was at the ED from the Meadowbrook Park Run and the ED from the, the Greenbank Park Run were yeah. talking about RMA and that's when I sort of went and had a little sticky beak and I saw heaps of posts about Anna and the first time <laughs> I met Anna I was so like girl fan <laughs> silly honestly and then I remember I remember going to lots of training sessions that she was doing and you know I came home and said to my husband oh, oh my gosh oh my gosh like the little one we had with us at that point in a pram I was like Anna let me run and Anna pushed the baby in the pram. You know, it was this big deal to me yeah. because she, she's just phenomenal mm. and so down to earth. And that just brought home to me again that all these runners that I think are fantastic, that have skills that, you know, that I can only dream of, and they think it's nothing. They think they're normal. Mm-hmm. I've corrected Anna so many times. She keeps telling me she's normal. It's phenomenal, <laughs> not normal, you know, oh, honestly. And she is. And, like, you know, she has, well, she's one of my closest, dearest friends now. And, I mean, I just thank God every day that I met her through RMA. Like, yep. but she was, I guess, and still is, just such an active role in the RMA community because yep. to her, it wasn't about her own goals. It was actually about, well, how many people can I influence to yeah. come alongside as well? So she loves doing that. She loves getting people together to run. It yep. doesn't matter how fast or slow they are. It doesn't matter where they've come from. If they've never run a step before, she's there for them to push the baby in the pram so you can have a run. Um, yep. That's what she's about. And she's all about community. That's yeah. that's exactly what I would say epitomizes Anna is that she, and this is Anna Croger for those that probably don't know, um, one of our RMA ambassadors. Um, she is just all about community. That's, that's just her to a T. So yeah. Thank God. And she's she, hilarious. And she she's hilarious. So yeah. And although <laughs> I don't know if she's probably, well, she probably has because you've just said you've gotten up at four or something like she loves to get up super early. I don't know if it's a Queensland thing with you girls. Cause obviously you live up there too. It's, yeah. It's she's hot. Just, <laughs> the earlier you get up, the more bearable the temperature is, honestly. Oh, I can't do it. Anyway, we'll get there one day. I don't know. I don't have to get up that early. I don't have a reason. <laughs> if I had someone I could run with locally, I wouldn't need to get up so early. But yeah. I live out in the sticks and there's not a whole lot of people locally that will run. And there's a lot of other people that live near me but that have different working hours. So yeah. we still can't run together because yeah. they're at work when I'm at home and vice versa, you know. Yeah. I used to get, when I first started running um, and I had the ability, I had two adult biological children living at home to help with little ones. So I could get up when they were asleep, leave at four o'clock to get to a run at five o'clock and I'd be home by seven. I'd be home right. by seven. And I... <laughs> And I've done, you know, my 17,000 steps for the day. I've burned 1,000 calories and it's 7 o'clock in the morning and you bounce the rest of the day, you know. (laughs) Well, you needed to look after all these children, I'll tell you. Uh, 
<laughs> well, the most I've had in my house at one time was seven. Wow. That's that was amazing. for five days. I had seven kids here for five days. And that, that was hard. I had five under three. Wow. Yeah. I just think it's amazing. When, when you first told me that you were a foster carer, I had no idea. I didn't even know that you were a foster carer. I was just like, what? This is amazing because I yeah. haven't met anybody who is a foster carer. So I wanted to know everything. I just want to know everything. So this is one of the reasons I've got you on too is I, I don't know. So I want to be uh, educated in yeah. what foster caring is and I also want to educate others what it is because I think there's probably people in our community that would be totally interested in becoming foster carers. So we're all about promotion here with RMA in promoting causes that are meaningful. And that's one of them that I think we can get alongside. So you've done such a a great job in, in all the things that I've seen you, um, you know, working on in terms of your role as a foster carer in uh, promotional videos and things like that in, in the last you know, a few years. Um, yeah. But this is just an extra thing that you can touch a different... Um, different audience. Audience, that's right. And um, who knows? Who just knows where this might go? There's so many people out there that think they can't be carers. I had a girlfriend that's now been a carer for nine years that thought she'd never be accepted because she was a single mum. She said, I don't own my own home. It's just me. They'd never consider me. And I said, are you kidding? Are you serious? Like that not having a partner and renting that doesn't stop you from being a carer. Mm. You know, there's so many people that think they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to do it, whether it's they think that they wouldn't be able to cope themselves mm. or that they don't think they'd be approved mm. when they could be the perfect candidate. They might, you know, give some child happiness and kindness and, and something mm. beautiful in their life that, mm. that they need. Yeah. Well, let's get into this now. Let's dive right into your journey. So can you tell us a little bit about what was your life like before you became a foster carer and when did this scenario enter your sphere? Well, when I was in grade 10, um, there was a a a very good friend of mine at school um, that wasn't in a safe position at home. And the guidance counsellor asked her where she would feel safe. And she said she felt safe at my house. So the guidance officer rang my parents. Back in the 80s, things were very, very different. Mm. Um, and she lived with us until she was a young adult. She um, she didn't like driving. She wasn't a fan of being behind a wheel. She was very nervous. She was one of those people with a real stressy kind of nervous mm. personality. So she decided she'd move out and move close to a train station so she could get to the course she was doing, so she could be independent. You know, she she shared a you know um, a home with people there, and so I grew up from fifteen till nineteen with a with a foster sibling. But mm-hmm. as far as we were concerned, we were sisters. You know, soul sisters, sisters against the world. <laughs> um, before then, I was an only child. Fast track to me having my own children, and you know, like. I had some children and I wanted more biological children and I had five miscarriages over the course of probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the last one, the fifth one was pretty significant. I was 18 weeks pregnant. So it was pretty full on when I lost the baby Mm -hmm. and my husband was working and working big hours and I had to go into the hospital to have a procedure after the miscarriage. And on the way home, I needed petrol. And I stopped at a petrol station and I was putting petrol in my car and the Bowser had a little card, placard, where you hold the pump to pull the trigger. Yep. And it said, foster carers hotline, can you help a child in need? 
And I thought, what an idiot am I? I'm putting my body through this. I'm putting my family through this to have a child that's biologically mine. I know firsthand that there's kids out there that need, you know, safety, love, the right to medication, the right to an education, the right to kindness, the right to hope. Mm. Why can't why can't I, you know, think on a different line? So I went home and I said to my husband, because he knew that my parents had been foster carers, and I said, you know, what do you think? And and our you know, our children were a little bit older, so we had a some were. So we had a meeting, a family, like a family group meeting. Yeah. And we discussed pros and cons and how everybody felt about it. And my I've only got one son, the rest are daughters. And my son was like, Oh, well, you know, it doesn't really affect me because I'll be moving out of home soon. He was thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> um and he thought he wouldn't be involved, that you know, my sisters will deal with this. I won't. You know, I'm the boy. I'll be yeah. fine. And he was on the floor in it, yeah. you know, playing yeah. cars, making train noises, putting toys together, assembling flat packs. Yeah. But we decided as a family that we'd go and do the training. Uh, we went to an information session and yeah. then we had people come out and do an interview with us and talk about the do's and don'ts, what we needed to do to pass safety because your home has to be to a certain standard. Yeah. Um, like, and it's just basically like being a daycare centre. We had to have furniture secured to walls and, and things like that yeah. so that there was no um, no danger to a small child. Mm. Um, and then we went and did the training and the prerequisite training at the pre-service training at the beginning is four modules and it was done over two weekends. And after the second day, the Sunday, they touched on um, our Indigenous children and we had to watch some very confronting videos about um, the stolen generation, and it really brought home to us as white Australians that haven't had a whole lot of, you know, connection to people with culture, not through any choice of our own, but just mm. circumstances, just how horrific it had been. And then they went straight into a unit on children that had been sexually abused. Mm. So let's shock and horrify yeah. the innocent people in the room on how bad it can be. And my husband said, do you really want to do this? Is this really for you? And I've got this attitude in life that, and I've got other friends with the same attitude that behavior and things you ignore, you're deeming them to be acceptable. Mm. And I said, if we don't help, who will? Mm. Who will? Yeah. Somebody needs to put their hand up and say, I can do this. It's yeah. kindness. And all my kids have grown up. My 25 year old will tell you the first rule of this house is that you must be kind. The mm. second rule is that you must be safe. Yeah. You know, their kindness makes the world go around. Manners cost you nothing. It's yeah. kindness. Yeah. And that's that's what I see as attractive in people. That's yeah. what attracts me to be friends with people is their kindness and, and how giving they are and how empathetic they are. It's yeah. kindness. And a lot of these kids, they don't know kindness. Yeah. And they think there's a there's a price attached to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, it, it's terrible. It's terrible. But. I convinced my husband to go back. <laughs> we did the rest of the training and then we sat and waited. We had to do all this homework and, you know, fill in yeah. these workbooks and apply for blue cards and wait and wait and wait. <laughs> it was a long time between, it was, it was 10 months wow. between us calling and us being approved. And rightly so. It yeah. should be an arduous yeah. process. There should be lots of boxes to be ticked and crossed. These children deserve you know, to be absolutely safe mm. and for them to do all the checks to make sure that we fulfil all the requirements for them to be safe. 
Yeah. We always wanted to be kids. Um, we always wanted to have children that were being reunified. We never wanted to put our hand up for a long-term child. Yeah. We were too scared that circumstances would change. Mm. We'd invest everything we had in us into a child and then the child would be removed because, mm. you know, a family member had turned up or something had happened. Um, so we did a lot of children that were reunified either with parents or with kin or community kin um, for six years. Yeah. Um, but we have done longer placements as well as the emergency in the short term. I did more emergency placements than anything else. Mm. That was that was the majority of the children that we were able to, to have and hold and hug and love and, and show some kindness to. Lots of 2am calls. I can't, I can't do that now because my older children have moved out and my children that I do have at home are too young to leave at home yeah. at 2am for me to go to the police station and pick up mm. a, a small child that, that's in need of somewhere, you know. So I feel guilt in that. I feel guilt that I'm no longer helping in the way that I was. Mm. But I can't. But there's but nothing. Still, it's out of my control. You're still helping, you know. Like, yeah, I know. Been, I know. I do what I can. Yeah. So... Before we get into like what this experience was like for you from the very beginning to now and how it's evolved and all the different situations that, you know, comes with foster caring, do you, can you give us some statistics about foster caring in Australia or even yeah. just where you're from? There's 46,000 children in Australia in out-of-home care wow. and that's the official title for foster okay. care, out-of-home care. There's 11,813 children, and that was in March in Queensland alone in foster care, and we only have 4,685 foster caring homes in Queensland. So a lot of children are in resis. Mm. Can you imagine, like imagine something happened to you tomorrow and you had a seven-year-old child that's innocent, that's naive to the cruelty of the world, Mm. and nobody comes forward to look after them and they're put in a resi. Most people think that, you know, and there's nothing wrong with a residential unit. There's nothing wrong with resis, but it's not appropriate. A little yeah. child yeah. should be in a house, in a home with, mm. with love and comfort and warmth and support and all these things that it should be just a given. Mm. And it, it, it's not um, some, some children are having to go to hotels because there's no placements. Mm. Indigenous children, you know, it's so hard because they need their connection to their culture and not just any part of the culture, to their mob, to their ground, to their land, to their people. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really hard to support that when we don't have a whole lot of uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander carers mm. because of intergenerational trauma. Mm. You know, yeah. it, it's so hard to, to heal the wounds mm. that have happened in previous generations to, to help our kids now. So, like, as as a person that doesn't identify as an Indigenous person, we attend as much training as we can. We go and meet. They used to be called RS, registered entities. Um, they're not called that anymore. So we go and meet, like, the elders and the aunties, and you know, mm. be involved in all the celebrations and, and all the all the things we can. We read Indigenous stories. We do all we can. I wish that Australians were more rich in indigenous mm. culture i really do we're not educated yeah. no we're not edu- right. why why aren't yeah. we yeah you're right you know mm. we need we really need indigenous people or people that identify you know in some way shape or form to their culture mm. to be available to look after indigenous kids too so that they've got that connection mm. they're entitled to it 
Yeah, 100%. You know, if a child comes into care that's of a certain religion, then we support them attending their church, doing, you know, doing their blessings, their prayers, whatever's part of their culture, because generally it's really widely known. Yeah. But Indigenous stuff isn't as widely known and that's, that's a real shame. Yeah. It's a deficit. Yeah. So what was it like for you the first, like when you first bought the first child home? Yeah. We had an, our first placement was an emergency placement. It was two little boys, siblings, and we, we'd only been officially carers for three hours when we got the call. Wow. And the way the process works is that the, the referral goes through the agency and the agency then looks on their spread to sheet to see, you know, who might be a potential profile match. And they ring you and say, okay, you know, still keeping the children's identity confidential. Yeah. They'll give you, you know, these are the ages, this is the sexes, this is the area that they're from. Um, any information they do know. Generally, with emergency, they don't know all of the information, but they'll tell you what they know, and then you you decide whether you feel that that is a placement that can work for you. Yeah. Um, they could have said it was an alien with green spots, and I would have said yes because it was my <laughs> first placement, and I was so excited yeah. I could finally help somebody. So I drove to the child safety office that these little kids were at and I picked them up and I said to the lady at the desk, you know, do you need to come check the car seats? Like, I don't know how this works. And she had a bit of a giggle and, and said, no, no, you've been approved. You know what you're doing. Just trust in yourself. Mm. And I've got no idea what her name is, but I'll always remember the look in her face. She said, you know, just trust in yourself. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And any time along the way that I've, felt you know like that because you see some pretty hairy behaviors and you know mm. some things and and I just think to myself you'll be fine just trust in yourself you'll be fine you know and we get through you get through take it a day at a time I accept every training invitation I can go to there's lots and lots of training as a carer that you mm. can do like we did those original four modules and then at the end of the first 12 months um, you do module five six and seven and that's around foster care legislation rules and regulations all that kind of stuff and then every two years you're expected to do a certain amount of advanced training mm -hmm. so if you have permanent placements then uh, the child safety officer or your agency will say well look you know we've seen these behaviors or you know the child's had this background or, you know these are the things we think would suit you so I've done so much training that's not even applicable to any of the placements I've got because what happens if I get a placement that that is the case information and education mm. is powerful it's yeah. a powerful tool it's amazing all the things that you can learn all the things that you discover and I learned as a parent that's not a teacher a parent that's not done any parenting courses or, you know, I've learnt to separate the behaviour from the child, yeah. to see the behaviour as exactly that, just behaviour. They're not a naughty child. Mm. They're making poor decisions, mm. but they're making poor decisions. Why? Because yeah. of trauma, because of their background, because they don't know any different. So, so let's teach them different. So what kind of... What kind of kids like come through foster care? Like you said before, it could just be that, you know, something's happened and, and, and someone's been put in, you know, no one's come forward, but what kind of yeah. children or what kind of situations have been a part of the world that you've been in with your foster caring kids? Yeah. Like where, what kind of situations have they come from? People have a preconceived notion that children in care are in care because their parents are, are alcoholics or addicted to drugs. Mm. 
that's not the entirety of the children in care. It's yeah. not. Um, I've had a, a lady with cancer that was homeless, that couldn't afford to work, um, had her child later in life and didn't have any family members in Australia to help her. So she voluntarily relinquished the right to her child for 28 days so that she could go through chemo and radiation in hospital. Mm. She had nowhere to stay, no, nowhere to go. So her little girl came and stayed with us. We weren't allowed to visit the hospital because with radiation, you know, there's all these rules and regulations. But, mm. but we did the best we could to show her love and show her kindness. And, and we knew we weren't mum. I've never... All of the emergency placements we had, all of the short-term placements we have, I've always been, I've always asked them to call me auntie. I never expect to be mum. I'm not mum. Yeah. Um, but I'm an, of the older mindset that I don't like being called by my first name mm. by a child. I, I've, I was taught that it was disrespectful. So all the kids called me auntie. So if we're at the shops, nobody ever questioned if they were mine. Mm. If the kid, and I don't even need to say auntie Sandra, just to say auntie, you know, oh, auntie, what's this? You know, and people would look and go, oh, and then move on. Yeah. There was no questions, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that helped bridge the gap with a lot of the mums, no matter what the circumstances were that the kids were in care, the fact that I didn't want their child to call me mum yeah. helped them. I also had like a little, um, I had photos. I had photos of the, of the backyard, photos because our backyard looks like a daycare centre. We've got like monkey bars. We've got an 18-foot enclosed trampoline with a roof, two swing sets. We've got a cubby house, you know, we've got all these things. So I'd have photos of all the stuff outside. Um, the room or the, the we had two rooms we were using at one point for foster care and I had photos of those rooms in a little flip photo album and I'd go through it. If, if I picked the child up with mum there, I'd go through it with mum and the child and say, you know, you're just coming for a little holiday at my house. Mummy's got some things she needs to get done so you can come stay with me. We can have some fun. We still get to come see mummy, you mm. know, and mum, when mummy's finished with the things that she needs to do, then, you know, the holiday will be over. Mm. Um, I've had children come and stay with me that mum lost a job, mm. uh, couldn't pay her rent, lost a house, was facing living in a car and wanted more than that for her boys, mm. wanted more than that. I've had 31 children come through my doors in 10 years and only five of them have been girls. Wow. The majority of the children that I've had the privilege to care for have been boys. And I don't know if that's just my statistic or if there is more boys in care mm. than girls. Mm. You know, that kind of blew our mind because, because my youngest biological children were girls. Yeah. Then our, our profile said that we would prefer to have girls because they'd be pass down clothes, pass down toys, common interests, you know, yeah. you're allowed to name what works for you. And that the demographics of our family, we wouldn't take any children older than our youngest child mm. because that would upset the power of, of yeah, siblings, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know. <laughs> I've got other friends that are carers that will only take them older than their biological children because yeah. their biological children are quite young and, yeah. you know, they've got parameters that will that, yeah. that demographic will work for them, yeah. you know. So, yeah, we, we, because, and once again, because we live out in the sticks, yeah. school aged children didn't come to us because there's no way I could get my biological children to school mm. and get the other children to their schools as well. So, we've mainly got kids that were before school age yeah. for a long time until, until, until there was more growth in my area and more homes out here and more people living here and then there started, unfortunately, there started to be more kids locally that needed help and then we were able to, to step in. But 
we mainly did emergency for a long time. And that was when they first come to you, um, they're on a three-day order while, you know, the, the courts are assessing things and then they might go home. I had one that did go home. I had one that mum was beautiful, amazing mum. One of the best moments for me as a carer was being able to take him back to the service centre and him being reunited with his mum. Mm. Um, but dad had court-ordered access. She didn't have a choice. She had to drop him off at dad's house and dad didn't pay as much attention as he should and their little boy was found wandering down a four-lane main road at two o'clock in the morning. Mm. So I got the call to come pick him up from the police station and he cried. He howled for mum all night. You know, he wanted his mum. Yeah. So to give him back to his mum, know that his mum is a, a beautiful mum, you know, an amazing mother that had done no wrong, that yeah. this shouldn't have happened, you know, mm. it, it was amazing. It's beautiful to be part of that, whether it's mum, auntie, nanny, mm. you know, I've seen um, ladies that were their daycare educators end up being the permanent carers of a child and it might be that that's the only that's the only home they knew was at daycare yeah. they got three warm meals they got hugs they, they got kisses they got you know empathy emotion from these beautiful ladies that then decide you know what i, I can love these kids long term mm. you know and seeing that is amazing mm. yeah like when you bring a child into your home and you, you've had little ones um yep. i guess mostly but how does how does the dynamic work in the family like with the other kids and like in your situation has that always flowed really well or has there been issues yeah. with your kids we've like, never had any issues yeah. none at all because i feel because we've always said they had to be younger than the youngest so our youngest always felt like her position was held we've never ever like i say bio and foster when i'm in an interview situation but in real life, they're just the kids. Yeah, they're, they're. I don't use those terms, those tags in yeah. real life at all. Um, we've always had this, this thing at home that if you have a problem, you talk about it. Yeah. And if you don't want to talk about it in front of everybody, then you come and talk to me privately and, and we'll sort it out. You know, my kids always felt heard. Um, if my daughter ever had a problem, if my older daughter ever had a problem, she'd come and say, hey, mum, I don't like this, and we'd sort it out. You know, if my son ever had an issue, we had one foster child that used to steal my, my oldest daughter's makeup, and I mean like Sephora Mecca makeup, <laughs> and paint walls and paint furniture with it. Or when the, when the highlighter is used to, you know, smashed on the floor and spread over the yes. floor, you oh know. It's like having she toddlers all over that. again. Like, you know, that's, yeah. oh, that's the only issue, right? But you've got to be open to that, I guess. Yeah. This is what you're putting yourself in in this situation. Um, I guess I wanted to know too, um, you know, children that are coming into your care, yeah. not all of them are going to be in situations where, you know, it's short-term care. Some of them are longer um, yeah. a longer time with you. Um, and some of them have gone through quite significant trauma yeah. in their life. How does that play out sometimes in behavior? And also how do you navigate that as a foster parent? A lot of kids self-sabotage. A lot of kids think you're going to get rid of me. So I'm just going to be naughty so that I'm dictating when it happens. And it's that removing the behavior from the child, understanding why they're doing it so that you don't get cranky so yeah. that you think this is why they're doing it. And how can we support them to see that that's not how it is? Yeah. You know, 
all the training, all the training, learning about co-regulation, learning, you know, learning all, all different training you can do to, to learn how to help them cope, getting them into therapy, advocating for them, letting the department know what behaviours you're seeing and your agency support worker as well, you know. I always, anytime there's anything happens, I always would email my agency support worker and copy in the CSO so that everybody's on the same page. Total transparency. I've always been a team player. I've always walked into any meeting, you know, whether it be just with the CSO or um, a family group meeting, anything. I've always walked in as I'm part of the team. I'm a valuable member of the team. Everyone there is a valuable member of the team. You respect everybody, you get respect back. Mm. I've never had an issue where that's concerned. I've always felt to be heard. Um, sometimes you have to get, have to advocate harder than others, but I think that's life. Yeah. I think that's in anything, yeah. you know. I um I really appreciate the the level of work that it goes into for the people that work in this industry, mm. you know. Honestly, that the things that they see and, and like like paramedics, the yeah. things that they see, the trauma that they themselves suffer and they still get up the next day and go to work. Mm-hmm. So the role of a foster parent, um, you know, is to work together with the families and hopefully reunite them with the families, but to give the children a safe environment yep. as well and a loving, caring environment. Yep. So... In your situation, you know, what are some of the success stories, I guess, that have come out of your um, foster caring experience in terms of being able to reunite families? This, this standout, there's two standouts for me. I've got one, two sibling groups that we had, but in each sibling group, there was one child that was more significantly more traumatised than the other. Um, one little boy that we had in a sibling set uh, when he came to us, he was 16 months old. He couldn't even crawl. He'd been, you know, strapped in a stroller, had had things passed to him, was carried around, wasn't mobile at all. He was obese. He didn't know how to eat solid food. We had to teach him how to eat. He didn't know how to play. He looked like my my son got down on the floor and played cars and trains with him and he just looked confused. Like, what are you doing, mate? You know, and he was nearly one and a half. Yeah. He should be have the cognitive skills to 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 realize oh this is what this is and and you know hop down and play too but he couldn't they ended up finding a relative for him and he was they were reunified um with this relative that lives in far north queensland and just amazing she came down here a couple of years later and to hear him belly laughing hanging upside down on some monkey bars Mm. and this was a child who's you know, horrific screams at night would go for hours and hours and I'll never forget them. I've never heard anybody scream like that outside of a, you know, a movie before and I never wished to hear that kind of screaming again. To hear him belly laughing, to see photos of him starting school, you know, um, the family, his family, his biological family that he's with, um, they keep in contact and they send me photos and, and that's really unusual. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I had another little boy come and stay here who was older, um, and he was nonverbal. When he came to us, he had four four signals that he'd use, and it wasn't sign language; it was body language that he'd use while he made it a grunt to tell hungry, tired, you know, those things. He was supposed to be with us for three days. Um, he was with us for nearly a month in the end. Him and his brother were with us for nearly a month, and when he left, he had sixteen words. Wow. Words. Wow. Not motions, not 
uh, uh, you know, because he'd point and go, uh, and I'd say, no, well, what do you want? What yeah. do you want? Do you want this? Say this, say this. So he had certain words and he loved to run. He loved to run. And one of the words that he left saying was fast. Oh. He'd, make, he'd make, you know, the Barbie arms that you use yeah. when you're sprinting, when you really want to have a good effort. Yeah. And he'd say fast. And oh. that meant I want to go in the backyard, run, you oh. know, and just, just to know that, to, to, to know the, the things that they've accomplished just because they felt safe enough to try them. Yeah. You know, they felt supported enough to mm. breathe, to let their guard down mm. and just breathe. Mm. And We're it must be so beautiful to watch like, you know, over that month or whatever that he was with you to watch yes. that evolution of that child come out of their shell and like just flourish in this environment that you've provided to them and that love and that care you know, at, I can imagine, I can just almost picture it now that at the beginning there's, you know, they're scared. They're in another environment. They're yeah. not used to, they don't know who you are. They don't know where everything is. They, they don't know how long they're going to be there. There's so many unknowns yeah. to them. And then over time, knowing and understanding that love and care you're giving them, just being able to relax and let their guard down and know that they're loved. Like it's just, it just but it's such a reward for me, yeah. you know, I don't need those words. I don't need thank you. I don't need you're, you've done well or you're helping. I see, hmm. I see their progress. I see their happiness. Hmm. I see them take risks that they would not take when they first got here. And that's my reward. That, that's, that's for me. That's the little tickle that we get inside yeah. and we think, wow, you know, we played some part yeah. in that. When my husband and I did the ads um, for the department beginning of this year, um, we did the ads for TV for them for their campaign to recruit new carers, and my husband was like, "They don't want to hear me. They don't want to listen to what I've got to say. You know, I'm I'm just I'm just a dad. I'm just I just go to work, and you know, you're the primary carer. I'm just I'm just in the background." And I said, "Well, you'd be surprised, you know." Yeah. And he did this interview, and two grown men in the crew are like crying <laughs> because of the emotion that he has. He's a protector. I knew when I met him when I was 19 that, you know, he just wants to protect everybody. He wants to keep everybody safe. That, that's his thing is he, he does not like to see injustice and he doesn't like vulnerable people being taken advantage of. Mm. Um, he was raised basically by his grandmother. So he would, in, you know, in the 80s, we didn't really have kin care. But in today's terms, the situation he grew up in would be classed as kinship care. So to him doing this was giving back to his nan. Mm. For me, it was, you know, fulfilling a need I had. So people say, oh, you know, you're a carer. That's so great. Yeah, I did it for me. I didn't just do it for the kids. Mm. I had a need too. I had a need to love more children. Mm. And I've had the great honour and privilege of loving all these beautiful kids, you know, going shopping and, you know, sharing in their excitement at getting new things and things that fit, you yeah. know, shoes. Children yeah. that have never had shoes, that have only owned songs that parents have, you know, passed down from other siblings mm. to have their own stuff and to hear they can take it with them and it's in a suitcase, not in a garbage bag, yeah. you know, just little things we don't even think about. Yeah. It, it's so, so different in their world. Mm. It's really opened my biological children's eyes to how the world really is. Mm. It's funny when I talk to people about their story and if somebody's gone on to, to found something or to do something, 
a lot of the time we hear this little, this kind of like they had this little voice that kind of told them or this little um, sign that, that made them think maybe that's where I'm meant to go. Maybe that's yep. the path I'm meant to go. Well, for you, that sign was yeah, the thing the on the Bowser. <laughs> Bowser. Like and I still put petrol in at that, that same petrol station. Saying, <laughs> that's the universe saying, this is where I want you. And yep. it, was per- it was a perfect fit for you. Um, yep. I wanted to know too, like, when does the department decide that a child is able to go back into their biological family situation? And also the second part of that is how do you cope as a foster carer letting those children go? Yeah. Well, the department doesn't make the decision. The right. court does. The right. court does. Yep. So a CSO basically is an evidence gatherer. A team leader has some power to make decisions. The service centre manager has the power to make lots of decisions, but on advisement from senior practice, you know, legal legal people that can advise them as well. Yeah. Um, but a magistrate makes the decisions on what the orders are. The department certainly puts the application in for the order they think is the most appropriate for the child, yeah. but they don't make the decisions. It's not up to them. It's up to the court. Yeah. Um, there's been there, there has been children we've had in our care that we haven't personally agreed with decisions made, but it, it's out of your hands. Mm. It's out of your hands. So all you can do is what you can um, and just know that there's enough good in the universe that where they land next, they're going to they're gonna have that same kindness and, and, you know, that same love and attachment and, you know. So I knew that I had to have a process and I knew I know how child-focused my oldest daughter is. Mm. So we knew we had to have a process for her as well. She loves reorganising things. So whenever we, when, whenever a placement left us, it was her responsibility to help me rearrange the room. When a child left, we'd rip all the sheets off the bed, we'd pull all the toys out, wash all the toys, wash all the sheets, turn the mattress over, turn the bed into a different position in that room. It wouldn't look like that child's room anymore because you don't want to walk past that room and see that child when they're not there because it does hurt. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. It hurts. You do yeah. grieve for them. Yeah. Um, and that helped her to be able to pick, you know, neutral linen to put on the bed so it looked normal. And then when a new placement came uh, or was coming, we'd have like a little list of how old they were, what their interests were. So she'd go in and, you know, we had a, an 11-year-old little girl that was into Littlest Pet Shop and she'd been into Littlest Pet Shop. And we'd see, we had from other, from other children, we had some Littlest Pet Shop stuff here. So she put a quilt cover on the bed that was the same colour as all the favourite toys and set all the toys up and all the DVDs that were brought to the front of the shelf were the, the Littlest Pet Shop ones. And, and that helped her accept new yeah. and say goodbye to old. Mm. The hardest thing for her was when placements ended when she was at school. Yeah. So she'd say goodbye in the morning and she'd come home in the afternoon and she would never see them again. Yeah, that would be sad. That was really hard for her. And as a parent, it was really heart-wrenching to know that I got to say goodbye, but she didn't. But I'm a shopper. I'm a woman. So, and I like jewellery. So I bought a Pandora bracelet. And every time a child has entered my care, I'll pick a Pandora bead that makes me think of that child. So I've got a Pandora bracelet. I don't wear it very often because I don't want it all scratched up. I want the beads to stay nice. So I wear it when I go out. Probably so heavy too by, by now. 31, <laughs> 31 charms. That's yeah. right. So I can 
uh, without even realizing it, I can be rubbing a charm or, or a bead and or, or you know playing with it. And when I look down, realize that the child I'm actually thinking of belongs to that bead. So all the beads, I know all the names, I know all the ages they were, you know, and and some I've never seen again. Others I've been able to to see, you know, photos or you yep. know meet up. So some um, of them do keep in contact with you. They're they're able a to very do that. limited amount. Yeah. And you have to be very transparent with the department yeah. if anybody makes contact with you that they want to have a connection and and get permission because, you know, the last thing you need is for everything to go wrong. It's yeah. be just best that everybody know and everyone yeah. be on the same page and, and everything be okay. What's the shortest amount of time that you've had someone in your care and what's the longest amount of time that you've had a child in your care? Um, three days. Yep. And... Mm, seven years wow seven years mm -hmm. yeah the oldest child I've had is 12 yep and the youngest child I've you know had the privilege of taking home and looking after was five hours oh wow she that was would five have been hours a, old that would have been a, a difficult situation like a newborn baby feeding and up all night and and it wasn't the only child I had in the house at the yeah. time either so wow. yeah I think wow. we had four. I think we had four at that. No, you know, four at that point. Um, yeah. I've had a, I've had a premie. She was seventeen days old when she was released from NICU. Um, but I had her. I had a two-year-old. I had a three-year-old, and then I had two of my biological children still at home as well. Wow. You know, so we bought, we ended up buying a seven-seater yeah. vehicle, and I said to my husband, you know, we need it. We need it because. Fair enough, we've got some children that drive, but they're, <laughs> you they're need not... to be able to get out of the house with them. <laughs> we, we need, yeah, we still need to be able to do things. So we yeah. bought a seven seater, wow. and now, now, we, now, a few of our biological children have moved out. We've got less kids at home, and we're not doing as much of the emergency care anymore. Yeah. So I've had a little bit of a midlife crisis and <laughs> traded <laughs> in the seven seater for a convertible. Oh, you're hilarious. That's so, <laughs> so I've gone from one extreme to the next, you know. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So, I mean, I wanted to, I mean, we won't identify who's who's in your care or how many, but obviously you have some children in your care still. And yep. I wanted to talk about how running has played an impact in their life. Yeah. So, obviously you run yes. and how has that, how has your experience with running helped? Cause I've seen how it's helped you connect with them. Yeah. So how has that helped you? I, I have one particular child with me that loves running, loves it. And I think, I think they love it because if they run with me, then their sibling that doesn't like running doesn't get time with me and they do. It's our time. It's time we get. Yeah. Um, this child has run um, in the children's version of the Gold Coast Marathon, the 2K kids run. Yeah. They've done NGC twice. Oh, I've got this thing within my running group. We, we always leave our watch on, obviously, right to the end, but we always sprint the shoot. It doesn't matter if you've run five kilometres or 50 kilometres, you sprint the shoot. You own that shoot. And we always look at our fastest speed over the run. The little person in my care that likes to run has a shoot PB of three minutes 15 in the shoot. Wow, that's amazing. Super fast. When you're little, that's fast. Yeah, that's For little amazing. legs, that's fast. Yeah. Um, 
the only little person I know that owns Garmin that's not a, a Disney princess Garmin <laughs> or, or an Iron Man or a Batman Garmin. But, yeah, it's, yeah like a 235. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and where's it for running? Knows it's not for school. It's not for anything else. It's just for running. Has oh. a Strava profile, has a, a Garmin profile, <laughs> wants to look at their data, wants to compare their data to your data, wants to race me. Oh. It's amazing. We did have one of my biological children come to the second NGC that this little one ran um, and cheered us up the shoot and through the finish line and just the, the joy on on this little one's face knowing that they've made the effort to get out of bed before 2pm on a Saturday. Mm. <laughs> when, you, when you're 21 and you go yeah. clubbing, that's when you get up, 100%. you know. <laughs> yeah. so, so for her to get up and, and turn up to this little one's race mm. meant so much to her. Yeah, you know? that's amazing. You mentioned to me um, about the training. Obviously, you mentioned a lot about the training that you do to be a foster carer. If somebody's um, interested in doing foster care, what process do they need to go through? It'd be different across different states. Mm-hmm. In Queensland, there's a hotline they can ring. Yeah, they, they ring the hotline and then that will start the process. It'll start the ball rolling. But I believe now it's done through QFKC, through Queensland Foster and Kinship Care. And from there, you can go to information nights, you can go... Pre-COVID, there was morning teas and things you could go to. Now with COVID restrictions, I'm really uncertain on how they they manage that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, all of the training we did was face-to-face. I dare say these days some of the training might be via Zooms and, and workbooks. Mm-hmm. It's just such an uncertain time because of yeah. COVID, you know. And I would imagine even like the, um, the demand for foster carers would be even greater now given COVID. Yes. That situation that it's put a yep. lot of families in. Yep, I agree. I agree, honestly. Yeah, it makes things really hard for everybody. And people that are people that are vulnerable to destructive behaviours. Mm-hmm. And we all talk about DV, but nobody ever talks about children in this situation. Um, you know, if they're stressed, it's more likely to happen. Yeah. It's more, if they're not able to work, if they can't pay their bills, if they're frustrated because they can't go down, you know have their own self-care they can't go down and play poker or they they can't go and and have a beer with their mates and there's nothing wrong with that everyone's entitled to their own version of self-care but that's when the wheels start falling off and we see families that had been traveling okay before suddenly not being okay Mm. so that's where we'd encourage people to show kindness and if you see somebody that needs help that needs assistance do something about it the behavior you ignore is behavior that you accept Mm, 100% before this conversation you you mentioned to me part of the reason you started running as well was to be able to keep up with the kids yeah I couldn't I couldn't keep up with them I had little ones in my care I had three little ones in my care uh I was morbidly obese I was I was almost 110 kilos and my I had chronic asthma as well so add that in I couldn't do a whole lot um and my teenage children, my older children, were doing a lot of the kicking the ball. And at the park, I was just kind of getting puffed and sitting down and watching. And I, I just decided oh, I need to change. I need to change. If I want to be around for these kids, 
you know, I need to be fair. I can't expect my my older children to carry the load. This this was my decision. I'm the parent. I need to be more active. I need to be more healthy. I need to do something about it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I did. I only did running. Um, like, running was my only, only um, exercise for, mm. gee, probably four months. And then I joined a gym. Then I felt comfortable enough to join a gym. But over the course of eight and a half months, I lost 44 kilos. Wow. I just want to ask, what were some of the best times that you've had being a foster carer? Birthday parties, mm. birthday parties. A lot of kids in care have never had a party, never had a uh-huh. cake, never seen a jumping castle except to go past them, never been on one. And on top of that, the overcoming of fear, the kids that are too scared to go on the jumping castle but really, really, really want to go on it but can't. Mm. Kids that wear noise-cancelling headphones and you realise they've gone to play in a play area and left them at the table with you. Mm. So they felt safe enough to just let go that little bit more. They're the best times for me. They're the best mm-hmm. times for me. You know, it, it's never, your happiest moment is never the day that they turn up because you understand the circumstances that they're coming from. Mm-hmm. You know, my life's biggest privilege but biggest tragedy is that I've loved children not from my body. Mm-hmm. You know, that bittersweet feeling. I, yeah, I, I, lo- I love all of them. I love all of them and I hurt for all of them. I hurt for the hurt that they suffered and any future hurt that any other kids may suffer. But my hurt is a small price to pay to stop some of their hurt, mm. to show them that they that they can be loved, you know. One little boy, we hired out the play centre, you know, the rooms they have in the play centres and they had um, age-appropriate like little kid laser skirmish and all the slides and the, the army nets to climb up like a ninja course and oh. oh my lord watching watching children jump at this bounce place we went to there was no memories in that there was no there was no angst there was no terror there was no unhappiness just the pure glee on their faces yeah. as they were jumping on this big pillow mm. um holidays i took one little girl um she was eight months old and with full permission and full disclosure from family and the department, I got to take her into New South Wales to meet her great grandmother for the first time and seeing them connect. And it was an instant connection, Mm. um, you know, seeing them connect and seeing the relationship that they were able to grow because they got to meet, they got to see each other. Mm. Um, It was amazing. It was amazing. And to this day, that, that particular relationship is something that I hold very dear to my heart. One child in our care, um, there was a there's a church that the family has been christened at for four generations, and it was the family's wish that she was the fifth generation to be christened in that church. Mm-hmm. So we packed the family up and we drove ten hours because flying is is a lot harder to get permission to fly yeah. than it is to get permission to drive. So we drove ten hours. And she was christened in her family church. So she was the fifth generation in this church and almost all the family, almost all the family made it to be there for the christening of this baby. So she might not have been living in one of their homes, but in that in that moment, on that day, all of that family was able to be there with her and for her. Mm. 
and that was amazing honestly that's part of like you working together with the family yeah. you know to keep it's really not unity. hard it's no. really not hard some people some people in the parent situation find it difficult it's mm. not that they're they're being inappropriate it's that it's a terrible situation to be in Mm. And to try and navigate that, let's try and think how they feel about this, you know. Mm. You've got to, you can't just see it from your point of view. You've got to see their point of view as well and you've got to make allowances for them. When you look back on your life, could you have ever imagined that you would be in this situation and that the, and the joy and the purpose that's come out of being a foster carer? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I didn't understand the way that foster care could happen apart from how it happened for us. Mm. So I might have imagined that there might be a friend of my daughter's, one of my daughters or my son's that I'd say, if you need somewhere to stay, you can come stay with us. Yeah. I never imagined that I would put my hand up and say, I want to do this. I thought it would be that I would be called on not, or that I could be called on, yeah. not that I would say, throw some kids at me. Yeah. And let me help. I've always wanted lots of children. And in in this way, while it's not ideal and it's not, you know, the traditional way of having a large family, I've got to love. I've gotten to love all these children. And I've gotten to meet aunties and cousins and beautiful, beautiful people along the way. It's not all terror and horror. You know, some of these children are in really unsafe situations. And one or more parties aren't even aware. Mm. There's situations where children have been vulnerable and have been mistreated and mum doesn't know. Yeah. And perpetrators can be pretty sneaky mm. and can be pretty sly and people can be unaware of what's going on. And you can, you know, go to the school to pick the kid up from school and the teacher can say, we had no idea. We had no idea because it's so well hidden and the children can be so groomed to say the right things. You know, and seeing those families, seeing those parents, um, you know, achieve goals, do triple P parenting and show they're appropriate and get their kids back. Mm. It's not just them achieving it. It's us helping them to achieve it. Mm. It comes yeah. back to that kindness again. I don't think you'll ever realise as much as, you know, it brings you joy and it brings this purpose into your life from an outsider looking in. Um, I don't think you'll ever realise, Sandra, how much impact that has on these children. I, I think you have made a difference in their life and in and a difference in a lot of these families that are able to be reunited. And I think carers, any type of carer, there are really are the unsung heroes. Like, you know, they really make a difference in our world and I just want to say thank you for that. Like, thank you for putting your hand up to do that. You've made a difference in lots of children's and families' lives and you should be celebrated for that. I really thank think you. that you should. I just think it's amazing what you've done for these little kids and what you can It's actually Child Protection Week right now. Oh, right now. Right now. Oh, this week. What Child a shame we're not week. releasing the podcast this <laughs> week. But you could say that you did it during we, Child Protection Week. 100%. We did it. We will say that. Um, but I always finish off the podcast um, with the RMA Hot Lap, which is five questions that I like to ask all our guests. And they're all yep. sort of, I guess, geared towards 
them in particular. Um, so I've got the questions for you that I wanted to ask, but what has been your favorite moment with foster caring? Um, my favorite moment with foster care would be my husband realizing just what, just what an impact he's been able to make because he followed me blindly on this wild adventure mm -hmm. and for him to realize that, wow, even to the point of him thinking, oh, the kids won't really know me, I'm not home very often, and then being reflective and going, wow, they wanted me to drop them off at before or after school care. They wanted, like, and they, you know, they come running to him with their arms up, ah, you know. Yeah. Wow. His, his reaction, his delight has been my biggest, my biggest wow because he doesn't realise what a good dad he is. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I like that, that you've said that about your family situation too because that's one of the pe things that people would actually find um, maybe they don't they don't feel like they fit the mould because their husband works away. Yeah. Well, it it's still okay. This is still okay. Yep. Like this, you know, you can still be a foster carer. Um, Absolutely. What has been your most challenging moment having children in your care through foster care? My most challenging moment has been um, meeting the parents for the first time if you know that that's the parent that's been deemed as why the child is in care, to not have prejudice, yeah, to, to look at them objectively, to treat them as a normal human being. It's almost like, you know, doctors have to treat anybody no matter who they are. Yeah. As a foster carer, that's what you need to do. You need to not see them for their actions or what they've done. You need to see that they are still the parent, the grandparent, the auntie, whatever, of this child and they have the right to that connection and you have to trust that, you know, that all the measures put in place will keep them safe. Um, that's been my hardest struggle and it's certainly been my husband's hardest struggle because he's so protective. Mm. Um, yeah, for both of us, I think that would be the biggest challenge. Yeah, that would be really challenging. What do you hope that children can gain from foster care the most? To know kindness, mm. to know comfort, because in kindness is comfort, is support, is love. To me, kindness is all of those things. To know softness, because the world is a hard place. For them to know safety, you know, all of those things to me are packaged up with, with kindness. Mm. I love that. What do you wish people knew about foster care that they might not know? That they can do it. Yeah. They can do it. Anybody can do this. Yeah. You know, anybody can do this. There's plenty of people that would be amazing carers that think, oh, it'd be too hard for me to let go or, oh, I just, I just don't have the room or they would never accept me. Yeah. There's carers out there that are, I won't say just because I don't like the word just with carer. There are carers out there that only do respite care. Yeah. So there's carers that have high needs children or children that are um, that act out because of the trauma they faced and they occasionally need a little rest. It might even be that I had one, one placement that I had emergency placement, had beautiful carers. They'd been with their carers for six years and the carer's parent died in Tassie and they couldn't get permission for the kids to go to the funeral. Mm. So the husband wants to support his wife in her father's death. You know, he wants to go with his wife 
So I had the kids for three days so that they could attend the funeral and help pack up some of the stuff in the house. Mm. We need more respite carers, people that can say, oh, one weekend a month, we can give up one weekend a month. And just when you only have them one weekend a month or just here and there, you know, to not be ongoing respite even, to just be available to help out, helps other carers, helping more children. Yeah. Um, The last question I had for you is what do you think the future looks like for you and your foster caring role? Um, I'm going to be a foster carer for a very long time. I now actually work within the community services sector as well as being a, because carers are considered volunteers. So as as, as well as being a volunteer carer, I also have a voluntary role within the um, community sector and I have a paid role uh, in community service sector as well. Yep. So I've gone from being a hairdresser <laughs> to being somebody that is loud and is heard, um, that advocates for children, whether it be small children or young people. Um, I just I just want to make the world a better place, you know. I just want to make the world a better place. And whatever avenue the universe throws at me to do that, then that's where I'll be. Mm, I love that, Sandra. And, like, who who would have thought that this would have been the journey you were on when you were trying to have other kids and then yeah. you went to fill up your tank with petrol <laughs> and then, bam, it's right in front of your face and this was the wild ride. There was no avoiding it. There was no <laughs> avoiding it. It was right there. Uh, I just love it. I just love that kind of thing. I just think it's total divine intervention. I just think that you were meant to be in this position. Yep. You're making a massive difference. And I want to say thank you. And thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and also sharing about foster care. Uh, if anybody would like to find more information on foster care, can you just repeat again where they could find that information? In Queensland, let's say, where would they okay. find in Queensland, the foster care recruitment line is 1300 550 877 or contact Queensland Foster and Kinship Care. Okay. So that's Queensland. So it's different for each state. So I'll yep. do some digging and find some information on the different states um, yep. and then I'll put them in the show notes so people can find out where they can get information if they're interested in foster care. Yep. Well, I look forward to continuing our journey with you you know you're an amazing woman you're just a beautiful human i love seeing all your Look who's posts. talking <laughs> thanks i love seeing all your posts on rma i love watching your journey unfold and yeah i look forward to hearing so much more um about your story to come so thank, thank you, you for joining us wow what an amazing episode that was with sandra ellers I thank Sandra for sharing her story and being so open and passionate about foster caring. If foster care is something that interests you, I've put some information in the show notes for each state for where and how you can get involved. Thank you for joining in the RMA podcast journey. If you have a story that you would like to share or know somebody's story that you think deserves to be heard, please reach out to me and I would love to have them involved in future episodes. For now, I hope you are safe and well wherever you are and I look forward to speaking to you next time.